boy, oh boy. We've lost that, haven't we? A lot of times I'll talk to people about church, invite them out to church. They're like, well, what time does your church start? Well, first service at 8.30. 8.30? I can't do 8.30. That's okay. We got one at 10. Ah, 10, 10 still pushing it. You know, it's hard for me to get up. Part of me wants to start like a 1 o'clock in the afternoon service just to say, I'm going to take away every excuse you have. They're going from over 100 miles to see Christ. How many times in our Christian walk have we had that, that moment of, Lord, I want you. I want to grow with you. Where's my Bible? I want to read it. Oh, it's on the other side of the room. It's hard, isn't it? But you see these people with that passion, that desire, and I say, Lord, boy, just give us a glimpse of that. Just to say, Lord, that's what we want. And we'll talk about that as we get to the Beatitudes. One other thing that you see here is you see in verse 24 that his, his fame, some of your translation says news about him. Jesus was starting to get this really big following. And anytime Jesus gets a really big following, guess what he does? He gives a really hard message. And so he has this really big following. And what does he do in Matthew 5? He says, this is what it looks like, guys. And this is tough teaching. He also does this later on. Go with me to John 6 real quick. John 6. He does this similarly later on. In John chapter 6, he gets done feeding the 5,000. And he has this huge following. Thousands of people are following him, but they're wanting the free meal. So what happens in John chapter 6 is that as these people are following him, he stops and says, let me give you a teaching. You guys are following me because you want physical bread. I have something better than physical bread. He goes, I am the bread of life. He goes, you don't want me. You want eternity. Look at John 6 verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So the Jews start in verse 52 arguing about this. Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? See, now think about this. We've joked about this before. Jesus really needs a better PR guy. He really does. Anytime he has a moment, he always does something that just doesn't make sense. He gets baptized a few chapters ago. The voice of God from heaven calls out. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove sits on his shoulder. And what does Jesus do? He runs to the wilderness for 40 days. That doesn't make any sense. Run with that. Matthew, chapter 5. He gets this huge following, and he sits down and does this really hard teaching. John 6, thousands of people are following him, and he stops and says, Hey, let me tell you what the really hard teaching is. See, Jesus was never once concerned about numbers. Never. Only thing he was concerned about was souls saved. And that's something we have to remember. We just got done talking about John the Baptist here. And we talked about how much we love John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And that's what our goal is too. That's not about us, it's about Jesus. Always pointing people towards Christ. It's not about these four walls. It's about people coming to know Christ. So, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Verse 60, verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he says to them, does this offend you? Does this bother you? It bothers you that I'm no longer giving you free food? It bothers you that you showed up and you wanted more food and I'm saying, no, 
I'm giving you something better than food? Verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Would that be enough if you saw me ascend into heaven? Is it the Spirit who gives life? The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now jump down to verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. It was never about the numbers. It was about proclaiming salvation through him. It was about them knowing that he was the bread of life. That's all that mattered. Verse 67, then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, my point is this, is before we get into Matthew 5, don't be afraid of the big teachings. Don't be afraid of the tough teachings. So often when it comes to sharing our faith, when it really gets down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's hard to look somebody in the eye and say, there's a hell and you're going to it. It's hard to look somebody in the eye and say, I love you, but these actions you're doing in your life are not biblical and they're sinful. This is not God's will. It's hard to do that. And we start saying things like, well, I don't want to hurt the relationship with them. I see them every day. I'm always around them. They finally started opening up to me, and I'm really going to close that door if I... Look at Jesus. He never was afraid to do the tough teachings. He never was afraid to say what needed to be said. He did it lovingly. He did it gracefully. But he always was spirit-led and was never afraid to say, listen, I got a lot of people here. I could really run with this. Can you imagine if Jesus would just feed everybody every time he got together? No, it's about the bread of life. It's about salvation. It's not about the free food. Don't be afraid of the tough teaching. So with that being said, let's get into the tough teaching now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you, falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A couple quick things. Blessed literally means in the Greek, happy. So if you were literally reading this, oh, how happy are you, poor in spirit? Oh, how happy are you, those that mourn? Okay? We call it the Beatitudes because that's a Latin word. Now, if you do these things, verses 3 through 12, you will be blessed. You will be happy. That's right there is what we need to know. We live in a world that is looking for something more. They know there's more. They know there's more out there. They're looking for a joy that is just regardless of circumstances. They're looking for just this idea of of God. Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We know there's something more. We try to fill that with so many things. We have an eternal hole in our hearts that can only be filled with Christ. And we're trying to fill it with things that are not eternal. And it never will satisfy us. We will only be blessed, we'll only be happy when we understand this. So what's the first thing that we need to understand? Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor. This word for poor is a very strong word. There's many different words for poor in the Bible. This one means to be completely, utterly destitute. 
You have no food. This is not, I don't have enough money to pay the bill. This is, I have no food. I have no clothes. I have no place to stay. I have nothing. And God says you're blessed. Because note verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. This verse is not about an economical level. God has called us to love the poor, take care of the poor, and be there for the poor. That is a practical. This right here is spiritual. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Remember when we went through Luke 5 last week, and Jesus was on the boat, and he told Peter, cast the net off, and Peter's net was full of fish, and Peter hit his knees and says, I can't even be around you. You are God. I'm not. I can't even be around you. That's poor in spirit. Matthew 8, in just a few chapters, there's a centurion that asks for his servant to be healed. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal it. And the centurion says, don't. Don't. You, you can't even be in my house. You are, you are holy. I am not. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You can't. That's poor in spirit. It's a godly brokenness where you realize, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. See, in Matthew 24, Jesus has talked about being a stone. And the Bible makes it clear. You either fall on the stone or are broken, or the stone falls on you and crushes you. What that means is you either willfully give your life over to the Lord and say, Lord, break me, I'm yours. Or Jesus falls on you in judgment and breaks you. It's always better to be willful. So this is a brokenness in spirit, a godly brokenness where it's not me, it's you. And Lord, I am nothing without you. Let's look at some examples of this, if you can, real quick. Go to Revelation chapter 2. You see in Revelation 2, two examples. One church that was broken, one church that wasn't. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus does a very similar teaching, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain. This one's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Meaning, those that think they have it all, they're rich. Jesus says, you don't understand it. There needs to be a brokenness in spirit. What does this look like? Revelation 2 shows us. Revelation 2 verse 9 gives us the first example of a church that's broken in spirit. Verse 9, it says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. See, they were poor by the world standards, this church. They had nothing. This church was persecuted. This church was attacked. This church was going through everything, and they had nothing. But Jesus looks at them in verse 9 and says, you don't get it. You're rich. See, that's poor in spirit. I realize I am nothing. And then when I realize I am nothing, the Bible says that God gives me the riches of Christ. So therefore, now I go from being nothing to being rich in Christ. But there has to be a brokenness first. The flip side of this, Revelation 3, verse 17. To the church at Laodicea, look what he says in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, wait a second, this church has it. This church has no money problems. This church has it all figured out. They look good. They sound good. They act good. Jesus comes to them in verse 17 and says, Actually, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were not poor in spirit. And what Christ is telling us to start this teaching off with is you have to be a broken man or woman spiritually. And you have to be poor in spirit. Now, let's just stop here for a second. If that point doesn't come across... 
What we do for the next couple weeks as we go through the Sermon on the Mount absolutely means nothing. Because if we can't reach that first point of a brokenness of I am nothing without Christ, none of these rest of these words mean anything. So do we fully get that? Poor in spirit, broken. Lord, I'm yours. Because it goes with the next one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's this mean to mourn? It means about mourning over sin. See, in James chapter 4, he talks about this. He talks about this idea that when you look at your sin, it crushes you. It says this, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. This is not a debilitating mourning of I can't do anything. This is not a debilitating mourning of condemnation. This is a mourning of a realization of my sin and His holiness. A great example of this is Psalm 51, where after David committed adultery and murder there with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51, and as you read that, he's a broken man. He's mourning over his sin of what he's done. Let me stress this point again. This is not a debilitating, I can't do anything. This is not a condemnation. This is a realization of my sin and his holiness. I have seen people be debilitated by mourning over sin. And they never move forward. How can God ever love me? How could I ever go back to my family? How could I ever be forgiven? Okay, you got mourning down, but this is not a good mourning. A good morning is, I am nothing in the Lord. I am nothing without the Lord. I am a broken man, and I am a sinner. But the mercy and grace of Jesus lifts me up, builds me up, encourages me. But we first have to understand our brokenness and our mourning, which then takes us to our next word, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek. Meek doesn't get a really good wording right now in our language today. In fact, I looked up the word meek in the dictionary, and this is what it says. The word meek means deficient in spirit and courage. That's not good. Deficient in spirit and courage. But if you go through the definitions and you get down a little bit lower in the definitions, it says obsolete definition, gentle and kind. That's what we're focusing on. See, 2,000 years ago, if somebody would come up to me and talk about James and say, James, you're very meek, that's one of the greatest compliments you can give me. There's a gentleness. There's a kindness. It literally means power under control. 2,000 years later, if someone comes up to me and says, James, you're really meek, okay, you're insulting me now. The word has changed a little bit. We need to understand the biblical definition of meekness. It's a gentleness. It's a kindness. It's a power under control. It means I could, you could destroy somebody with words, but you choose not to. You walk in grace and mercy. You could intimidate somebody through anger and frustration and yelling and screaming, but you don't. You could be the bully at work and get whatever you want, but you don't. Meekness is, I know the power I have to build up and to tear down, and I choose not to tear down because I am gentle, I am kind. Jesus is the greatest example of this. He had power. God in the form of man. He actually says in the Gospels, do you not think that I could call ten thousands of my angels down now? But he didn't. The most powerful man or woman in the world is the one that controls their tongue, their temper, their attitude. They're the ones that are walking in the fruits of the Spirit. 
And what happened is we have lost this definition of meekness. John Corson makes a great point about this. Talking about meekness, he says this. The world says, assert yourself. But God's word says, blessed are the meek, the poor in spirit, and those who mourn. Although it's nearly impossible for the world to understand, brokenness and meekness are the qualities that will lead you to abundance of peace, both presently and into eternity. And it's fascinating. I've run into a lot of believers, especially men, that are biblically meek. And the world looks at them as weak. It's like, you have no idea the power in this man. He's a God-loving, Jesus-fearing man. And he's full of the Spirit. Just because he doesn't act like the world doesn't mean he's not strong. And we need to understand this definition of what meekness is. Gentle, kind, power under control. So put this together. Our first three. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. If you're noticing, those first three things are what I call emptying things. God is trying to empty you of stuff. Can you be broken? Can you mourn over your sin? Can you walk in meekness, gentleness, and kindness? Once you are now emptied, and you say, Lord, it's only you, guess what now? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be full. God says, now hunger and thirst for me. I've emptied you of everything. You're broken in a good way, mourning in a good way, meek in a good way. Now let me fill you. Do you want to be full, though? See, the problem is some of us think we're already full. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, right? I call it plateau Christianity. You're born again. You're saved. You know what Jesus did for you. You're at a good point in life. Marriage is good. Life is good. The walk with Christ is good. I love the Lord. Sure, I talk about him here and there. Do you realize there's a whole other level of more? There's a whole other level of more. And I think what happens is we reach a point of comfortability where we no longer hunger and thirst for Christ or for righteousness. That word hunger is a great word. That word hunger means, once again, not that I'm hungry. It means I need food. I'm going to die. See, my kids get hungry a lot. They get full a lot. We'll be sitting at the supper table and we'll say something like, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm full. I look at their plate. There's still food on their plate. You're full? Yeah. Can you eat? No, I'm done. I am done. I don't know where they learned this, but if I eat any more, I'm going to get sick. I don't know where they learned that. Okay, you can be done. Take your plate away. Hey, can I have dessert? No, hold on a second. Are you full or are you not full? Because if you're full, you have no room for dessert. What you're really saying is, I am full of what I just ate, but I want more. The other day, I was out doing some stuff, and it was just one of those days where I didn't eat breakfast, I didn't eat lunch. It was now 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was hungry. So I stopped at the gas station, and one of my rules in life is you don't buy things at gas stations. It just destroys your budget. It destroys everything. But I'm at the gas station, and right beside the checkout, there are Twinkies. Now, they're not good. I mean, they're not good. I don't know what they are, but they're there. And I bought them, and I ate them really quick. And after I got done eating them, I was still hungry. I was not full. And I just wonder, how many times in life do we, do we do that? We're hungering and thirsting for something more, and we buy spiritual Twinkies. And then we walk away saying, I wonder why I'm not fulfilled in life. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for more of the Lord? God will take you as deep as you want to go in Him. 
He will not force it. He will not push it. But He will take you as deep as you want to go. If you reach a point where you say, Lord, I'm good. He'll say, I'm not going to push you. I'll convict you. I'll encourage you. I'll tell you it's worth it. But if you want to stop right where you're at spiritually, He's not going to make you go deeper. The question is, do you hunger and thirst for more? And I really do believe this. The problem with a lot of us, and I throw myself in this group, we become spiritually content. And we don't want that deeper love over the Lord. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? We're full, but there's more. See, we're not full of ourselves. We're supposed to be full of Jesus. That's what he's done. He has emptied us. The first three blessings are emptying us. Now he says, let me fill you with me. Let me fill you with a purpose and something more in this life. And then you'll finally start to see what this is all about. Because there is more. So what does it look like when you get filled with more? First one, you get mercy. Oh, mercy is wonderful. And not only do you get mercy, you get to show mercy. Go with me to Psalm 105, please. Psalm 105. What's it mean to get mercy and to show mercy? One of the most powerful things we can do as a believer is to forgive somebody. It's to say, I will no longer let what you did to harm me or hurt me control me anymore. And I forgive you like Christ forgave me. Now, I'm assuming at this point there's probably somebody thinking the classic, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. And my response always back to that is, I know what I did to Christ and Christ forgave me. Psalm 105, verse 8. Let's talk about mercy. Excuse me, Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. I love that. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. This is the mercy that you have obtained. God is slow to anger, abounding mercy, uh, gracious, He's not going to keep your sin over you forever because He has dealt with us. And He hasn't dealt with us the way we should have been dealt with. Verse 10, my sins should send me to hell. I should be punished for what I've done. He goes, see, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you mercy. Now, the point then is, since we have tasted this mercy of the Lord, we're supposed to take that mercy and now apply it to other people. Somewhere, there's a break that happens. Lord, I thank you for the mercy and grace you have given me. Stop. Why is that not going to other people? Well, I'm just thankful for the mercy and grace he gave me. The point is that that mercy and grace he gave you now filters down to where you say, I want to show that mercy and grace and forgiveness to other people. And God says, blessed are you when that happens. Blessed. Oh, how happy are you when you forgive people? When you walk in mercy and grace? You're not walking in bitterness? You're not walking in hurts of the past? It's a beautiful thing. What about verse 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, I struggle with that one. I know I'm not pure in heart. That really doesn't mean pure in the heart of sinless. We're only made sinless through Christ. Pure in heart means pure motives. Single-mindedness consumed with God. See, only thing I want to do is serve the Lord. A single-mindedness consumed with God. When I get up in the morning, Lord, it's you. What can I do today? Who can I share with? Who can I be a light and a witness for? God, it's you. It's not, what do I want to get done today, and I'll try to fit the Lord in later. 
It's not what would make me happy in life. I remember years ago, I was doing marriage counseling with a couple. I was so close. I mean, it was so close to just seeing things get worked out. And I just remember the, the gal saying, I've spent enough years of my life taking care of others. It's time for me to take care of myself. And that just crushed me. Because it wasn't a single-mindedness. It wasn't a consumed with God. It was a very self-seeking mindset. That it's not about you anymore. It's not about God anymore. It's about me. I'm in a season where I want to make me happy. It's finally time for me to focus on me. Jesus did not die on the cross for you to focus on you. He died on the cross to free us from sin and then to point people towards Christ. And we need to have a pure heart, a single-mindedness, focus on God, consumed with God. And guess what happens? When that happens, you get to see God. Now, I think that means also literally. We get to stand before God in heaven. We get to see God, which is amazing. But I also think you get to see God move and work. We're we're kind of doing this little uh, discipleship uh, devotional thing. A bunch of guys out here at church are, and we're going through the book of John. And one of the points that we talked about recently was in John, I talked about how when Jesus turned the water to wine, that the only people that really knew what he did were the servants. No one else really knew what was going on, but the servants knew. And we talked about how that point is, the servants see God. The servants are on the front line. The servants see what God is doing. And if we're not there serving the Lord, we never really get the big deal. What's the big deal about the Lord? You know, I just kind of show up, I do my thing, I go home. But when you really are single-minded, consumed with God, you see God move and work. And it's like, wow, Lord, you're amazing. Because he's moving all over the place. Are we looking for it? I had a situation just pop up yesterday. I'll just share it. Here's just a typical situation that pops up. I get a phone call from somebody that says, Hey, I'm on 281 between road 16 and 17. And I stopped. There was a car that was broken down. And they need some help. Didn't know who else to call. What can we do? I said, okay, what do we need to do? We need to get them to either, where do they need to go? We find out where they need to go. They need to go to Defiance. Okay, so I start calling people that come out to church here that live in Defiance or live in Holgate. Hey, could you go pick these people up and get them to where they need to go? Call the person back. I got somebody. They're going to come get them. Oh, they also need somebody to get the car. Okay, changes things a little bit. So call somebody else. We need to get a car hauler now over to 281 between road 16 and 17 to go pick these people up. Okay, we don't have a car hauler that's close. There's no real call, call, car hauler, easy for me to say, car haulers near. So I said, why don't you drop uh, Gus a call? And I'm going to pick on Gus for a second. Gus mechanic does a great job. So I call Gus. Gus, don't know what you're doing. I always tell people this. Before you say yes, think about what you're saying yes to. Got a car over in 281 between roads 16 and 17. It's broken down. They're having problems. I talked to Gus. Gus says, is there a Chrysler 300 sitting beside him? I said, I think so. I said, why? He goes, I just drove by them. <laughs> Taking this semi back, he takes the semi back, drops it off, comes back, and he helps the people out and takes care of it. Now, that's, that's the Lord. That Gus is just driving by on 281 between roads 16 and 17. And Gus happens to be a mechanic. And Gus is a halfway decent good guy. You know, it's just one of those, <laughs> it all kind of comes together. That's the Lord. And now, somebody can sit there and say coincidence and all other type of stuff, and I don't care what you think, because it's the Lord. And, and, and my point is this. I don't say this to edify anybody. 
But when you're a servant on the front lines and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll carry water pots back, you get to see the water change to wine. And, and when you're willing to serve and you're willing to be consumed with God, single-mindedness, you see God move and work. But the problem is if we're only thinking about ourselves, we don't really see the Lord move and work. Because the only thing we're doing is checking ourselves out in the mirror as we walk by. What about me? It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And that's what you see here. Blessed are those. What about verse 9? Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Now, this does not mean peacemaker that you're going into a warring situation and you're bringing peace to people. Amen, if you can do that. But if you really look in the Bible, the only way two warring parties are going to have peace is if they want to have peace. You can't make anybody have peace. They have to choose to want to have peace. So what does it mean where it says, blessed are the peacemakers? Well, fascinating passage. We don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 6, it says that when we go out and spread the gospel, we're basically wearing shoes of peace. Romans talks about this as well, that our feet are like instruments of peace. So blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because we're out there telling people about Christ. We're bringing people into a peaceful relationship with the Lord because sin caused problems. And when you get a chance to see that, it's amazing. It's amazing. When you see somebody come to know Christ, we had an opportunity just last Sunday, there was somebody that that prayed to accept Christ after church, and as you're praying with them, you're thinking, Lord, this is amazing. As we're praying this, you're thinking, the angels in heaven are rejoicing at this moment. Blessed are the peacemakers. I don't mean this literally. Please don't. But take a look at your feet. Are your feet feet of peace? God has designed your feet to have you carry around to tell people about Christ. The, the purpose of our feet are not to walk to what pleases us. It's to walk in what pleases God. And then that is where the peacemakers come in, that we get to represent Christ and tell people about the peace they can have in a relationship with Jesus. So put this all together. We're poor in spirit. We empty ourselves of us. That's all about the Lord. We mourn. We realize the severity of sin. We're meek. We walk in a gentleness and a kindness. Now... We're full. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We only want what the Lord has. And when I hunger and thirst after righteousness, I show mercy, verse 7. I am single-minded, consumed with God, pure in heart, verse 8. I am spreading the gospel, verse 9. And guess what happens? The cherry on top, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for that they, so, excuse me, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The final result of this amazing, spirit-filled, Christ-centered life is you're hated by the world. And that's the word that Jesus used in John 15. If the world hated me... They will hate you. So you stand for Christ. You're doing everything right. You go into work tomorrow, and you're going to be crazy for Jesus. And now no one wants to work with you. No one wants to talk to you. No one wants to be around you. And God says, you're blessed. You're blessed for that. Now, it's easy to tell somebody else that. I got a friend that uh, gets persecuted a lot. And a lot of false accusations against him. A lot. And every now and then they'll call me up, and it's kind of frustrating. They'll be like, they said this or doing this. And I always tell them, man, you're blessed. You're blessed. So a while ago, I was talking to someone, and I was telling them about somebody saying something against me. And they said, man, you're blessed. 
It's not fun being on the other end, you know? It's more fun to tell the person you're blessed than to be told you're blessed. It's not fun. Especially when it says this, verse 11. They say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Falsely. I don't know how many times people over the years have come to me and said, James, they're saying this about me. And it's not true. And it just makes me angry. It makes me frustrated. Yeah, I know, falsely. Jesus, they called him a drunk. They questioned his parenting, his parentage, excuse me. They, they, they hung him on the cross and made up all these accusations against him. He said he was going to tear down the temple. He said to rebel against Rome. No. Jesus knows what it's like to be persecuted falsely. He knows what it's like when people say all type of evil against you. And you know what he says in verse 12? Rejoice. Why am I rejoicing? Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You get rewarded in heaven. You do not get rewarded on this earth. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to look past this earth and look towards eternity to realize that's when the rewards are happening. But think about this. You don't want to be rewarded now. You don't. Can you imagine if you got your rewards now? I'm 38 years old. The Bible says I got about 70 years. So that means I would have 32 years to enjoy this reward versus all of eternity. For you that are over 70, you are on borrowed time. You don't want your reward now. I could be taken home to be with the Lord this week. I could be taken home to be with the Lord in the next 50 years. I don't know. If I got my reward now, I may not be able to enjoy the reward of what the Lord has given me. Verse 12, that's why the reward is in heaven. For all of eternity, we get to enjoy the reward of Christ. We get to enjoy the reward of fellowship with God. So we look past what's happening now, and we look past this, and we look towards eternity. Plus, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, verse 12. Do you realize when you take a stand for the faith, you do the tough teaching, you do the tough saying, and people don't like it, you're in good company. You're in good company. You can actually for once relate to what some of these people went back through in the Old Testament. And what an amazing picture that is. Amazing picture. Put this all together one more time, please. Poor in spirit, we empty ourselves of us. We mourn over our sin. We walk in gentleness and kindness. Now we hunger and thirst. We go from being empty to being full in the Lord. We show mercy. We obtain mercy. Single-minded, pure in heart, focused on the Lord. Peacemakers spreading the gospel. And realize persecution, tribulation will come. But we're blessed by it. What I want to finish up with this is, is Romans 10, please. Romans 10. Romans 10 brings this all together. In Romans 10, verse 13, you get one of these really simple verses on salvation. Romans 10, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Boy, how simple is that? Let's not complicate salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now it leads to questions. Verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not yet believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So, great question. Paul says, call upon the name of the Lord, you are saved. And then through the Spirit, he responds to his own statement with questions, saying, okay, that's great. But if they never hear about this, how are they supposed to get saved? If no one ever goes out and tells them, how are they supposed to know? If no one goes, what good does it do? 
So now we have verse 15, as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This is where it all comes together. We know the importance of salvation. We know the simplicity of salvation through what Christ did on the cross. There's a heaven and there's a hell. We were destined for hell. Christ says, I will take the punishment. I will pay the debt. And his death was the only currency accepted in heaven. And that gives us access to God. And now we can be poor in spirit. We can be emptied of all that junk. Be filled with Christ and walk in mercy. Walk in a single mindedness. Walk in a peaceful relationship with him. And now we go tell people about it. But somebody needs to go. And this is what I love about what the Lord's doing. You know, for the last couple months, we've been talking about this, um, uh, taking these 40 days here and just really praying and fasting and what God has called us as individuals and also what God has called us as a church. And I encourage you, grab one of those sheets back there, pray over it, seek the Lord. We've been praying the last couple weeks about a closer relationship with the Lord and knowing your calling. Okay, so James, I have a heart for this. What do I do? Take those verses, pray, and the Lord will reveal what your calling is. He will. He promises that. And and it may not happen overnight. It may not happen in that week of praying. But just keep praying it, seeking Him. He will show you. Okay, I want to go tell people now. What does this look like? That's what I love about what's happening on Saturday. Practical, Spirit-filled, how to share your faith. And I hope you can make it come out to that. That's going to be Saturday from 10 to 2.30. And it's just going to be a great teaching there through Betsy's sister. Just about what does it mean to be spirit-filled, looking for God-given opportunities throughout the week to really say, I want to represent Christ in all that I do and say. I, I tell you, I encourage you, if you have any questions about that, see Betsy. And, and maybe it's time for you to take that public stance for the Lord. That's what I love about what's going on February 14th, doing a baptism out here at the 10 o'clock service, if that's something that interests you. We talked on baptism a few weeks ago, and I'm sure Alan can get you a copy of that teaching there um, back in John chapter, excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 3. And maybe the Lord is leading you to do that. My point is this. There's more. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? There's more. It's not a have to. It's not homework. It's a, it's a want to. Lord, I want more of you. And God says, I'll take you as deep as you want to go. That's what I love about him. The worship team wants to come forward for the final song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.